Tonight we are in the great book of Ephesians. We're picking up on uh, chapter 2, verse 8, 9, and 10. And if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, this is Ephesians 2, verse 8. We'll start just the three verses. This is God's Word. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed by the reading and the study of God's word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as we've been ascending the foothills of theology in the book of Ephesians, this amazing letter sent to the Ephesian church, we uh, can see these amazing blessings that were given to the saints that even caused Paul to break into a doxology back in chapter 1, you remember, chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And some of these blessings we've talked about from chapter 1, Election, predestination, redemption, adoption, unification, inheritance, and even our sealing by the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 2, Paul approaches the apex of these blessings, saving grace, arguably the most amazing, the greatest blessing, the greatest gift ever given fallen man. But before he can do that, he must tell the good news of this amazing grace. Before he tells that good news, he must tell us the truth, the true standing of the fallen fallen man before a holy and righteous God. Our true standing, our inability, our unwillingness to be reconciled to God. He must tell us that man is, is not sick. Man is not in a coma. Man is dead. Man is room temperature, spiritually speaking. And it is this context That makes grace so amazing, isn't it? God would have to make us alive by grace. Here Paul, as it were, is planting a flag, a a definitive declaration of the working of God's saving grace in the sinner's heart. When Paul in verse 5 and then in verse 8 of chapter 2 says, by grace you are saved. It represents the climax really, of God's redemptive work and the fullest depiction of His love for lost sinners. We love grace because it saved us. We love grace because it's unmerited. We love grace because it's unconditional. We love grace because of what stands behind that grace. And it is a bloody Roman cross that held the sinless Son of God who bore our sins. So we love grace because we know we could never deserve to be bought at such a price. Ontologically, there couldn't be a greater, gra- greater gap between the mighty master who bought us and the pitiful slave on the slave block whose only hope lies in that five-letter word grace. Verse 7, which Noel preached on last week, often gets overlooked because it's backed up against verse 8, but it speaks of this glorious future grace. As the reason that he made us alive, it reads, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This future grace, God will lavish on his saints to display his glory for eternity. 
Verse 7 displays the glory and the power of his sovereign future grace. Tonight we will look at the power and the glory of his sovereign saving grace. And we're going to look at three aspects. We're going to look at the divine order of salvation. We'll look at the divine delivery of salvation. Then we're going to look at the transforming power of salvation in these three verses. In verse 8, Paul transitions to saving grace by which we have been saved by using the coordinating conjunction for to transition from the future grace to the current saving grace. As if Paul is saying your future is extremely bright for the glory of God. But let me tell you how it started. Let me tell you of the sovereign grace that saved you. Let me tell you how you were justified. Now, there's no section of scripture that more clearly states the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith than these verses. This is the core doctrine of salvation. This is the irreducible minimum of salvation. So critical is this doctrine that we gave our very lives to the truth of this doctrine. And so critical is this doctrine that it was the hill to die on that the reformers literally gave their lives for. And for the whole Protestant movement that was protesting against Rome and its corrupt works-based system. So it is a critical doctrine, and this common thread of grace alone through faith alone has always tied believers worldwide for the last 2,000 years together. Grace alone through faith alone has been attacked and perverted more than any other doctrine in Scripture. When they say things like, you must be circumcised to be saved. You must be baptized to be saved. You must speak in tongues to be saved. You must observe the Sabbath to be saved. You must attend Mass to be saved. You must do the works of a good Catholic to be saved. You must do the works of a good Mormon, Jehovah Witness, fill in the blank to be saved. And clearly our verses, these verses today, destroy the false gospel that is propagated by these demonic religions. But let's first look at the divine order of salvation. You've heard of ordo salutis. That means order of salvation. And last week, Noel spoke of one of the most abrupt transitions In Scripture, that speaks of the unregenerate man going from dark to light, going from death to life, going from being unresponsive to being made alive spiritually, beginning with those memorable words from last week, you remember, but God, in verse 4. Well, this week has its own two-word interjection in verse 8, by grace. And now before we dive into that verse, let's look at the order. First, we were dead. Second, God made us alive. Third, as we explore tonight, by grace you have been saved through faith. You've heard the debate. Does faith precede regeneration or does regeneration precede faith? Paul couldn't be clearer about that. On the order of salvation, that regeneration precedes faith. Just look at verse 4 of Ephesians 2. You see the order. After detailing man's total inability to make himself alive spiritually, God made us alive. First, then by grace you have been saved. Second, in other words, new life spiritually had to happen first. Then came God's grace giving us faith. Otherwise, we were dead spiritually. No pulse, no response. For what does death mean than the inability to respond? So God had to make us alive first, just as he caused breath to enter those very dry bones in the valley of dry bones, that they may come to life then he put his spirit in those dry bones, as he does in us 
He takes out our heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh, but he's not done. He, our hearts are then invaded by the grace of God who brings faith. And what does that look like? 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said life shall, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is God's grace that brings faith to our new hearts. So we can see with new eyes, the eyes of our heart. And you ask, see what? To see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We could not see him when we were dead. We could not see Jesus Christ until we had new eyes. We could not have new eyes until we had a new heart. And we could not have a new heart until we had new life. What was the first thing Jesus tells Nicodemus? Truly, truly, I say, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what does Doubting Thomas say? I will not believe unless I see. And what does Jesus do? He not only shows up physically, but he opens his eyes spiritually. And immediately, what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. He praises him. A couple weeks ago, Thomas preached on the eyes of faith being opened by God. Ephesians 18 of uh, chapter 1, 18 and 19. It reads, so that you... The eyes of your heart having been enlightened, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength. Notice we are not the active agent opening our eyes. Rather, God is the one enlightening us first opening the eyes of our heart, giving us understanding so we will believe. It is God who must first, as Peter says in 1 Peter, cause us to be born again, regenerated so that we can see with eyes of faith, then we can believe through the faith that only comes through God, through his grace. 1 John 5.1, this is so critical to look at the divine order of salvation. 1 John 5.1, it shows this regeneration preceding faith. The verse reads, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And notice the tenses here. Everyone who believes, present tense, has been born of God, past tense. And just to double down on this idea, the same sentence structure is used in John a couple chapters earlier. If you guys go to chapter 2 of 1 John, verse 29 It reads, you know that everyone also who does righteousness has been born of him. Again, the tenses are so important here. Everyone who practices righteousness, present tense, has been born of God, past tense. So if we go back to chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ has been born of God. We see the grave error that the synergist, the Arminian makes. When they try to flip the text and say that the verse is saying our belief causes us to be born of God. Well, then to be consistent, since John uses the same sentence structure, they have to likewise say in chapter 2, verse 29, that it is our righteousness that causes us to be born of God. So if you believe that your belief causes you to be born again, then you have to adopt the heresy that it is our works, it is our righteousness that cause us to be born again. 
thus making the Armenian, the Arsergen synergist, if they're being consistent, an enemy of sola fide, that we are saved by faith alone, not by works. So they are preaching another gospel. That is why this is so important. Another problem with getting your ordo salutis backwards when thinking that your faith precedes regeneration is that you're saying that by your faith, by your own will, you have defeated and overcome your fallen state described in chapter 2. So by your own will, you have defeated and overcome the evil course of this world. By your own will, you have defeated and overcome the prince of the power of the air. By your own will, you've defeated and overcome the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Talk about a man-centered theology. The power of your own will, your own faith. That is what sets all of this into motion and results in your regeneration, your new life. Is that the progression that we see in Romans 2? No. In Romans 2, it says you were dead. God made you alive. Then came God's grace that saves. By grace, you've been saved. Notice that this chain reaction introduced in verse 5 doesn't yet even mention faith. If that is the critical act of man that you hang your entire theology on, why wouldn't Paul throw in man's precious libertarian free will, his faith, which saves him? But here's the problem. They are focused on man being the active agent When in this section, in the entire epistle, and in the entirety of Scripture, only God is active. It is He alone who predestined us. It is He alone who elected us, who redeemed us, adopted us, gave us an inheritance, and who has sealed us. And here, who has made us alive, and He's lavished His grace on us. And it's not even until verse 8 that Paul adds that wonderful word, faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Paul, speaking through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to understand our salvation here. So we understand the process of the divine miracle of our new birth from the dead. The new birth that has caused us to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. The new birth that gave us life, the indwelling Holy Spirit which gave us wisdom and revelation in the full knowledge of him, the new birth that gave us eyes to see and hearts to understand the riches of his glory and the surpassing greatness of his power towards us. So let's consider point two, the divine delivery of salvation. We've looked at the order of salvation, that regeneration precedes faith, and that salvation comes by a monergistic work of a sovereign God, Verses 8 and 9 together read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of your works, so that no one may boast. Now, first off, there's no greater verses that declare the sovereignty of God and salvation than these two. Just listen to the four descriptions of our salvation. Your salvation is not of yourselves. It is, your salvation is a gift of God. Your salvation is not of works. Your salvation leaves no room for boasting. Paul is not unclear here, using positive affirmation and negative denial to drill down on the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation. Paul is saying that in every way possible, it is all of him. You have no part. But you you could say there is a critical part that we do play. 
Jonathan Edwards, known as the greatest pastor and Christian philosopher America's ever produced, nailed it 300 years ago when he said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Our salvation is not of ourselves. Paul says, it is only of God. And if that is not clear enough, Paul then says our salvation is a gift, not of works. He is rightly saying that gifts and works are mutually exclusive, even complete opposites. If you did any work to receive a gift, then it's not what? It's not a gift. Or you could say if we played any part in gaining our salvation, such as I made the decision, then it's what? It is a work. And if it is a work, then it can't be a gift of God. You see, a gift from God is freely bestowed, abounding in grace. So Paul is saying the gift of salvation pours forth from God's grace, grace, by grace you have been saved. In Romans 11, Paul is consistent. He says, if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So if our salvation is not of ourselves, it is a gift, it is not of works, of course, we can't boast in anything. So what are we to boast in? Well, 1 Corinthians tells us, But God has chosen us the fool- chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and to despise God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and redemption and sanctification and righteousness, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So clearly these verses are making the case of the absolute sovereignty of God in delivering salvation. And the means of this delivery of our salvation, as it is for every believer who's ever been saved from their sins, from the wrath of God, is for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is a living and active trust in Christ and all his redemptive work, but it's not something we can produce in ourselves. Rather, it is God who kindles it in our hearts. God grants faith to his elect as a gift. Philippians 1 states, For to you it has been granted, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So faith was granted to us, and we received it by Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1 records, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this faith we receive comes from outside of us. And you know, the so-called faith that we had before we were saved, none of it pleased God until he gave us faith. For without faith, his faith, it's impossible to please God. So just to make sure we're all tracking here, how much were we involved in our salvation? We weren't. Nicodemus got it. He got the metaphor. Remember when Jesus told him, you must be born again. Oddly, most of Christianity doesn't get this truth, even today, that just as you contributed nothing to your physical birth, you contribute nothing to your physical, your spiritual birth. This is humbling because we are active in none of it. But we, because we are not the active agent, not only does God resist the proud and give grace to the humble, 
but he humbles us by his grace. And how are we to respond? With the only thing we have left in ourselves to give, and that is gratitude. For the echo of God's grace is gratitude. And that's how you respond when you've been given the greatest gift of salvation, of new life, of redemption, of transformation, of adoption, of inheritance, of unification with God. And one day our future glorification. And it's all by His grace. Are we not thankful every day for His grace? Now listen to another quote by Jonathan Edwards. It reads, Grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. Grace is but glory begun. Grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. Isn't that beautiful? And glory is but grace perfected. I love that. Now, some semi-Pelagians, Armenian synergists, don't want to argue the point in verse 8, just so you guys know, that the gift of God is, where it says it's not of yourselves, they will say, well, that's not referring to faith. Even though faith is the antecedent. They argue that since faith is in the feminine gender, which it is, and the pronoun this is in the neuter in gender, that the this of this is not of yourselves is a gift is not referring to faith. The problem is grace is also in the feminine gender, just like faith. And there's no other neuter noun for this this to refer to. So when this happens in the Greek, the proper construction is that the neuter this would not refer to a singular word like faith or grace. It would refer to the whole statement. So it translate as this, which is not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, is referring to the whole phrase, grace through faith, salvation. As uh, S. Lewis Johnson put it, grace by faith, salvation. The whole phrase, grace by faith, salvation, is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, all of it. So none of it is of ourselves. Grace is not of ourselves. Faith is not of ourselves. And salvation is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. Finally, verse 10, we look at the transforming power of salvation. It reads, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In verse 7, we looked at, Paul referred to the future grace and glory. Verse 8 and 9 speak of saving grace when we are justified. Now verse 10 is speaking of sanctifying grace we are to walk in right now. Having been justified in the past while we await glory in the future. God, we have seen already in verse 4 of chapter 1, was active in preparing a people. His elect, it read, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He prepared beforehand his people, and also he has prepared beforehand the very works that his people should walk in. Interestingly, the only other time this Greek word for ordaining or for preparing beforehand is used, other than here in verse 10, is in Romans 9. And it's not referring to works. It's actually referring to his people. It reads in Romans 9, And in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So we see that we aren't saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Good works 
aren't the root of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. And the order here reveals this, that we are to walk in these good works, although they're prepared beforehand. They follow after we have been saved by grace through faith, right? They are the good fruit of a life transformed by the power of salvation. And what we see here is a sovereign God in our sanctification as well as a sovereign God in our salvation. This again speaks of the transforming power of salvation, that we would not only be new creatures, but as new creatures, we would be doing good works, good works that we never would have done when we were unconverted. As monergists, we glory in the sovereign God who is active in electing us and predestining us, redeeming us and adopting us, and here putting us to work for him because we are his workmanship. We should be thrilled to be doing the work of the Lord as his slaves. Brothers and sisters, is that how you look at it? When you serve the body, when you serve his body, this could be counseling, teaching, preaching, discipling, singing, playing an instrument, doing the AV booth, encouraging others, cleaning, fixing, organizing. But truly, it is the best kind of work, no matter how menial, because it reminds us of the transforming power of salvation. The synergist here is really lost, isn't he? Because they believe in a small God, a God that even if they did believe, he prepared a people beforehand, and they did believe the subsequent works for them to do, it's only because the God of the universe is dutifully responding as a servant to a future decision the fallen sinner will make when they decide to save themselves. They worship man who is, they think is active in salvation. And they relegate God to being a passive agent who begs and waits for man's response. That is not the active God of the Bible who is sovereign over all things, who has decreed all things according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. This unwillingness to let God be God dishonors God and elevates man. It is true that we rob man of a higher view of God because we do not give him a lower view of man. If they could only heed the words of a once great king in Scripture from Daniel 4, who was restored by God, it reads, But at the end of days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes toward heaven, and my knowledge returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? So in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we've seen the divine order of salvation. We've seen the divine delivery of salvation. We've seen the transforming power of salvation, the divine order of salvation is that we're regenerated first by God before he grants us faith. The divine delivery of salvation that comes through faith by grace, not of ourselves, but as a gift and the transforming power of salvation is a life changed and the good fruit, the good works that result. One final encouragement is the absolutely rock solid guarantee of our salvation, that if we are regenerated, 
we will not only be doing these good works stated in verse 10, preordained in eternity past, but look at our reward as we look back at verse 7, which states, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What an astonishing promise. Believer, we will make it, but not of our own strength. For up to us, we, our salvation would fail. Thankfully, the same grace through faith which called us to salvation is the same grace through faith that sustains us in salvation. And this not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. For He is the perfecter. He is the finisher of our faith. First Peter 1 records, To obtain an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through salvation, for a sal- through faith, for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So our salvation is kept in heaven and protected by the power of God through faith. So the same faith granted by God that has saved us is saving us and will save us. Nothing in the universe is so secure because it is not our faith, but the faith God has created in our hearts. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So grace has closed the gap between holy God and rank sinner. And it is all of grace. From saving grace to future grace, God has made the way. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, this is humbling. This is a humbling doctrine uh, of the power of your grace. And we bring empty hands, Lord. We bring nothing to this, for we know that you will not pour your grace into anything other than empty hands. And we have empty hands, Lord, for your grace is sufficient for us. It is enough. We can't do anything to add to it. It is all we need, Lord, and we give you all the glory and credit for this grace that saved us, is saving us, and will save us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.